Hey guys! So you might be wondering what I'm doing back so soon, seeing as our next Rough Guides episode isn't until next week, but we've got something a bit different for you this week. Our sister company, Insight Guides, is starting their own podcast series today, and as we know, you're a discerning audience, so we thought we'd share the first episode with you. I have the host, my glamorous colleague Zara Sekavati, with me here. Hi Zara! Hi Amy! So this is exciting. For those who don't know, can you tell us a bit about Insight Guides? Insight Guides is the sister guidebook to Rough Guides, which brings in-depth historical and cultural perspectives for interested travellers. So we thought we'd make a podcast to go with it. Each episode will be focusing on one place and hear from local experts on the hidden stories behind it. We're hearing the history of the Fez Medina, learning how cruise ships were first born, and taking a trip on the Trans-Siberian Railway. Sounds like the perfect companion podcast to us. Where can you subscribe to it? So we're taking over the Rough Guides feed this week. Thanks, Amy. And we're also launching our own feed where you can catch the series every two weeks. Search for the Insight Guides podcast on your podcasting platform of choice to subscribe. Sounds great. So what is the first episode about? So when you think of Panama, you're very likely to think of two things, the hats and the canal. But even though, of course, I'd heard of the canal, I didn't know it had such an intriguing history. So this week, we take a trip down the Panama Canal. One thing that really gets to me when I'm planning a trip is when I'm researching the place, all I can ever find is the most obvious stuff. Arc de Triomphe, Berlin Wall, Acropolis. What if you actually want to know about the history and the culture of a place? That's why I decided to do an Insight Guides podcast. We believe that the best travel comes from really getting under the surface of a destination and making the most of local experts. That way, the people who know the place best can lead you to the things you never would have found without them. Since 1970, Insight Guides has provided a -a one-of-a-kind look at the world's best travel spots. We were the first publisher to make highly visual illustrated travel guides and over the last near 50 years, we have specialised in inspiring generations of travellers to discover the world through our range of guidebooks. Today, we also offer tailor-made trips to your favourite destinations. Check out insightguides.com for more information. Each episode, I'll be bringing you in-depth perspectives from local experts into the places you've always wanted to visit. I'm Zara Sakavati, your host for the series. As one of the travel editors at Insight Guides, I am lucky enough to be exposed to these surprising stories every day. For our first episode, we're off to a destination that's on endless must-go lists for 2019, and for good reason. One day, you can go birdwatching. The next, relax on white sandy beaches. And the following day, take a boat ride to an island dense with tropical rainforest. But this country also holds within it a thrilling history. Freelance writer and researcher Sarah Humphreys wrote the Insight Guide to Panama. Our producer Jess went to meet her and find out the twisting tale behind the construction of the Panama Canal. Before talking to Sarah, I'd heard of the Panama Canal. I mean, I know it's really long, surrounded by rainforest, very beautiful. But I had no idea what it had taken to become what it is today. In fact, 
Sarah wasn't always a huge fan of the canal either. The way she explains it, it was the story behind the canal that led her to fall so in love with it. I first went to Panama years ago um, on a wildlife watching holiday and, and while we were there, my partner, who was uh, an ex-engineer, was really keen to see the Panama Canal. And I have to say, I didn't share the enthusiasm. I thought it would be very dull, very technical. But when I did go to the canal, I was absolutely blown away by it. Um, not just the technical brilliance, but also learning about the whole history and, and all the politics involved were quite incredible. And then, of course, on top of that, there is the sheer beauty that I wasn't expecting. What Sarah explained was that this combination of a fraught history and tropical scenery was no coincidence. In fact, Panama's location is the reason it's been at the centre of so many conflicts for hundreds of years. Panama is just a tiny strip of land, a narrow land bridge between two huge continents between North and South America, and separating two huge oceans, the Pacific and the Atlantic. And that's really essential to grasp because people, since maritime trade got going, people have wanted to find a way across, these, across the land to make a way between the seas. For hundreds of years, Panama's been exploited because of its prime location. In the 16th century, Spanish imperialists used Panama to shift their plunder. In the 19th century, during the gold rush, it was actually faster for Americans on the East Coast to travel down through Panama, cross through the jungle on foot, and then sail back up the West Coast to get to California, than simply crossing the States. They even built a railroad through Panama so they could get there quicker, which ended up in rioting. And that's all before we get to the canal. So in terms of the history of the canal, the first major event was when the French tried to build the canal. Um, enter stage right Ferdinand de Lesseps, who was flushed from the success of the Suez Canal and thought that he could build one across Panama as well. De Lesseps had no idea what Panama was like. He was used to building a canal on flat terrain in the desert. And here he was in Panama with thick jungle, lots of nasty diseases, yellow fever, malaria, lots of mud, a huge long rainy season. So there were massive landslides and he wasn't an engineer. He was a diplomat turned financier. But because of the success of the Suez, he thought he knew it all and he didn't listen. He was arrogant and he didn't want to do the locks, which are crucial to the canal, you know, working. Uh, eventually, he did get on board Gustav Eiffel, who'd just done the Eiffel Tower. But by the time he'd listened to his advice, it was too late. Uh, far too much money had been spent. They were over budget. Thousands of people had died. And the whole company that was sponsoring the deal went into financial ruin and meltdown. End of story. Sarah told me an estimated 22,000 people died trying to build the French Canal in Panama. Pretty bleak for one of the most beautiful places in the world. Not only this, but up to this point, the Panama we know now didn't even exist yet. It was occupied by the Spanish and then became part of Gran Colombia. Then, in the early 1900s, 
Theodore Roosevelt got involved. So the next guy of real significance was Theodore Roosevelt, president of the US at the time. And he'd been wanting to build a canal for quite some time in order to make US a major maritime power to rival those in Europe. At that time, Panama was part of Gran Colombia. So in order to build a canal, Roosevelt had to go to Bogota to negotiate a treaty. Uh, And they wanted a slice of the cake and the financial offer that he gave was not good enough. And they rejected it. So Roosevelt was very peeved and he saw an opportunity by tacitly offering to support the Panamanians who were keen for independence at that time. So he installed a couple of gunboats off the shore and when the Panamanians went to, well, they wanted to overthrow the Colombians, but in fact it was a bloodless coup because knowing that the US was offshore, they just allowed allowed Panama to slide into independence, really, without any loss of life. I mean, that sounds pretty cool of Roosevelt. Panama wanted independence, the US could provide military support, thousands of lives spared, no strings, right? Well, not quite. Sarah said, as soon as Panama won their independence, Roosevelt started sending over negotiators to seal the deal for an American canal in Panama. But sadly for Panama, they sent a guy called Philippe Bunalvaria to do the negotiations. Now, he was a really slippery chap and had been a major player in the French canal effort. And he had a vested interest in the canal being made through Panama, when at the time they were also considering a route through Nicaragua, which had already had a huge lake, so it would have been much easier to build. But he wanted to get money out of it and sell the French concession to the Americans which would obviously help them on their way because they had done quite a lot of digging, even if they'd not managed to do anything else. So he went there and negotiated more or less any terms that the Americans dictated. So long as he was going to get the money at the end and the French were going to get some money, he didn't care. The deal that the Americans wanted was a one-off payment of 10 million US dollars and a mere 250,000 US dollars every year. Plus, they wanted the canal zone, which was five miles, eight kilometres, either side of the canal, that would be their territory, their territory to run as they want, police as they want, and do exactly as they wanted with. And this was in perpetuity, so forever. Um, And of course, Bunavaria was very interested in the 40 million US dollars that the French company were going to get to hand over their equipment and their infrastructure to the Americans, since he had a major stake in the company. So, let's think about this deal. The US paid Bunavaria's company four times more money to use their canal foundations and equipment than they paid the whole country of Panama to own a slice of territory right through the middle, forever. The Panamanians were seriously unimpressed, not surprisingly, and uh, initially refused it, but he made up a lie on the spot saying, if you refuse this deal, the US are going to withdraw their idea to do the canal here and take the business elsewhere. And of course, the Panamanians wanted the deal, they wanted the work, they needed the money, and they were a very fragile state, you know, that had only recently become independent. And they, I think they were afraid of losing US support um, and US protection. 
It seemed to the Panamanians that they had no choice. And just like that, the American Canal in Panama was born. The big difference between the French Canal effort and the US Canal effort was the fact that the Americans insisted on building a lock-based canal. And the other main difference they noticed was that mosquitoes were carrying malaria and yellow fever. Now, in the French effort, they thought it was just bad air, and so they had no means of combating this. During the, the American Canal era, the chief medical officer, William Gorgas, he realised that it was that yellow fever and malaria were mosquito-borne, and so they fumigated lots of the work areas. That's not to suggest that people weren't dying, but they just weren't quite dying in the same numbers. Uh, and that obviously made a big difference to the speed at which they could, could work. So on account of all that, the canal was actually finished in 10 years, which was a phenomenal achievement and so much more successful than the French effort. But when we talk about a, an American canal, we're not really talking about American canal at all because it was built mainly by many other thousand workers from all over the world from 97 different countries, but most of all, West Indians and very many descendants from Barbados, which is where I live. So, you know, and of course, these were all black workers who went there because they were offered money, but obviously didn't really know the appalling working conditions that they would be under. Um, the rain, the mud, the accidents that happened on the, the railway, which was used to take away a lot of the earth, the sticks of dynamite. They used thousands of tons of dynamite to blast through the rock. And obviously that was a very dangerous job. And you were four times more likely to die as a black labourer on the canal as a white engineer, which is a shocking statistic, really. Let's just take a moment to think about this. The French failed to build a canal because they didn't build locks. And in the process, 22,000 people died. Then the Americans came along. They remembered to build locks, so they, they did actually finish building the canal. But only through enticing labourers from 97 different countries to work in extremely dangerous conditions, resulting in more mass deaths. And that's not all. Local people weren't even allowed to work on the project. Ironically, there were actually very few Panamanians involved in the canal's construction because basically the Americans didn't trust them. They thought, and rightly so, that they'd be very resentful of the power that the Americans were wielding and the privileged positions and the privileged lifestyle that they were leading in the canal zone. Um, so very few Panamanians were actually involved. And of course, this over time, over many years, you know, built up the resentment that Panamanians felt towards the US, um, some of which still exist today. And of course, as time went on and the world entered into World War One, and then even later in World War Two, the canal zone, which split Panama in two, became effectively uh, a US military base. There were over 20 installations there. And during the time of the Korean War, there were 100,000 US people in the canal zone, which when you consider that the population of Panama at that time, uh, at the time of the Korean War, was only about a million, that's a heck of a huge population. And only one bridge across this canal and several little ferries. So it was very difficult for Panamanians to move from one part of their own country to another. And in order to go through the zone, you know, they were in under US jurisdiction, US policing. So over the years, this resentment spilled over into various spots of violence. 
most notably in 1964 when the flag riots happened. Um, there was a lot of hoo-ha about whether a Panamanian flag or a US flag should be flying and which should be bigger and which should be more prominent. And this all spilled over when some Panamanian students hoisted a Panamanian flag, wouldn't take it down. Tensions spilled over and the police used tear gas and people lost lives. 28 people died, most of whom were Panamanians who have subsequently been made martyrs and are celebrated annually on Martyrs Day in Panama. So when the next major president of Panama came to power, in 1968, Omar Torrijos, who was the flamboyant dictator of the time, used to wear a fantastic hat, he came to power and he got to power on the platform of regaining the canal for Panamanians. And the Americans, who could see which way the wind was blowing, eventually agreed to sign a treaty. Um, Jimmy Carter was the president at the time, and so Torrijos and Jimmy Carter signed a treaty that was going to gradually hand over the canal. Though this was agreed in the late 70s, it took until midnight on the 31st of December 1999 for the USA to actually hand the canal back to Panama. Imagine that! On the brink of the millennium, we're all watching the fireworks and worrying about the Y2K bug, while Panamanians were waiting to have full control over their country for the very first time. It's nearly a century since independence. Panamanians were physically divided and emotionally scarred by having the US running their country effectively. And for the first time, their country was going to be one continuous country. Panamanians could go from one side of the canal to the other within their country without the US say so. Since the noughties, Panama has expanded the width of the canal to allow for larger ships. And at over 80 kilometers long, it's no wonder Sarah's engineer partner was so desperate to see it in the flesh. So, I suppose to go back to my first impressions, um, you know, when I went to the canal, I was expecting something more like the Suez Canal or a little canal in, in England, but bigger, you know, straight lines, narrow uh, and very unscenic. And then when I actually saw the Panama Canal, I, it was just amazing because it's not straight lines. It curves round bends and round hilltops. And then there's this huge, beautiful lake, the reservoir that's full of what are now mountains, hilltops forested with howler monkeys and parrots and toucans and iguanas and just brimming with wildlife. It's just magical, magical when you see the sunrise. And I first went there, also I went to, to visit the Smithsonian who have a research station on one of the islands. And you set out in the morning, chugging across the island, uh, the lake. You chug along in this tiny little boat, ready to see lots of wildlife on the island. And then suddenly this huge tanker comes around the corner. But it's silent. This ghostly, enormous behemoth floats right past you. And I think this is it. It's the contrast between these huge container vessels and the pinnacle of technical achievement of the 20th century and now the 21st century with the Panama Canal expansion. And then you've got the contrast with absolutely stunning scenery, but there's so much more to do. That was the other thing that absolutely stunned me. You can go kayaking, you can go fishing, bird watching, hiking. So I would encourage anyone to go to the canal because it's absolutely beautiful. 
If Sarah's fascinating story inspired you to visit the Panama Canal, you can book a trip through our website, insightguides.com. We offer tailor-made trips to your favourite destination. Tell our local experts where you want to go and they will build your personal trip. We'll be releasing the brand new Insight Guide to Panama this October, so keep your eyes peeled for that. Hit us up on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. Next episode, we're going on a cruise. Thanks very much for listening. We'll be back as normal with our next Rough Guides episode next week. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe to the Insight Guides podcast.